If you could please open your Bibles to John chapter 17. I will use John chapter 17 as our starting point today. This will be topical. As we get a glimpse in one small one small section here of the son's relationship with his father. I'll start at verse 1 and I'm going to read through verse 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the word has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. My focus today is going to be on verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I want to talk about this book today. Personally, there's a reason... I'm just speaking for myself. There's a reason I put this book here when I'm here. Because I want you all to see this book matters. That hopefully what I say here is based upon and extracted from this book. Not just me speaking. I want this book to be in the forefront because this is truth. Does it contain truth? Yes, but it's more than containing truth. This book is truth. Because something that contains truth might also contain that which is not truth. But this book is true from beginning to end, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Every word in this book has been breathed out by God. And God cannot lie. Therefore, every word in this book is true. This book is not to be judged by men. This book judges men. That's why I put this here. It may be a little small symbol, but that's why I have it here. I, I don't want to speak for why other people put it here, but that's why I put it here. I want to talk about this book being truth. The attacks on this book are ongoing. You know it. There are, there are attacks on this book from outside the Christian faith, and sadly enough, there are attacks on this book from people who profess to be Christians. You know people who think that you are a fool for believing what this book says. They think you're a fool because you believe what this book says about God, just about the fact that there is a God. 
They think you're a fool because you believe what this book says about who God is, about there being one true God, about there being a living God, about God being triune, about man being created good, about man being created male and female. That's crazy in society today. But that's a statement of truth. It's not only a statement of of spiritual truth, it's a statement of scientific truth, of biological truth. God created them male and female. But people think you're a fool because you believe that. People think you're a fool because of what this book says about about there being a need for the seed of the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent as the serpent is crushing the heel of the seed of the woman. They think you're a fool because you believe what this book says about the history of Israel and its enemies. They think you're a fool because you believe what this book says about the prophecy concerning a baby being born of a virgin named Emmanuel. About Emmanuel coming, being born of a virgin, fulfilling that prophecy hundreds of years later. That baby growing up, that baby living, obeying the law, saying what He did, performing miracles, healing the sick, doing things that people should like. He empowered His disciples. This book says He empowered His disciples to do the same. And this book says His disciples were going to be hated because of it. Why? Because they did it in His name. This book talks about the seed of the woman, the child born of a virgin, dying on the cross being buried, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father. This book talks about something miraculous happening at Pentecost where the Spirit is poured out on all flesh and this raggedy little bunch of men changed the world because of what the Spirit empowered them to do. This book also says there's going to come a day when it's all going to be over. When men are going to have to give an account for their life to the living God. When the seed of the woman is going to judge the world in righteousness. When, when grace and kindness to the rebels is going to end. And they think you're a fool for believing that. There's going to be that day when the rebels are going to be cast into the lake of fire along with Satan and his angels. And people think you're a fool because you believe that. There's going to be a day when God's people will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb as the worshipers of the beast are cast into the lake of fire. When the seed of the woman comes and judges the world in righteousness and we have a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns, where there will be no more crying nor tears nor pain. And they think you're a fool because you believe that. But it's true. This book does not lie because this book cannot lie. But this book also says something about those people who say you're a fool. This book says they're the fools. The fool says in his heart there is no God. But this book also gives hope to the fool. If the fool turns from his rebellion, turns in repentance to God, places his faith in Jesus Christ. He will have eternal life. And people think you're a fool for believing that. But you're not a fool. This book has the words of life. This book gives hope. This book addresses the real condition of man. This book reveals the real nature of God. This is a wonderful book. And it's true. Jesus spoke truth when He prayed to His Father. Your word is truth. He says the word of His Father is truth. He who is truth spoke truth about truth. Sanctify them, He says. Set them apart. Purify them in the truth. Make them holy. In truth, in this book, 
Now we know at this time we did not have the fullness of the Scriptures when Jesus is praying this. When he is praying this, we have the Hebrew Scriptures in place at his time, and Jesus and his disciples read a Greek translation of the Scripture. But whatever has been breathed out by God, before Christ prayed this or after Christ prayed this, it is true. And the world wants you to believe it isn't. The world wants you to believe that just one part of this isn't true. Because if they can get you to believe that just one part, one element of this isn't true, it throws into doubt the entirety of this book. Genesis 3 is still going on. Did God really say? The devil may use his demons to do that. He may use your mom to do that. He might use your sister, your brother, your co-worker to do that. We still have that going on today. But Jesus says, as He prays to His Father, sanctify these guys, this little band of people, and by extension, us. Because He talks about us here, those who will believe on their account. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Based upon what this book says. Not upon what men say. My goal today is to help all of us trust this book more. Now that may seem a little preposterous, you know. We all believe this book. Well, yeah, but until we don't, until some sort of seed of doubt comes, until something in life happens that makes you go, "How, how can that be?" And I'll, I hopefully I'll address that in a few minutes. But I'm going to stand here today and tell you that not only this book is truth. This book is absolutely true, and this book is absolutely true and applicable to every single human being who has ever existed and will exist. I'm going to stand here and make a preposterous statement in our postmodern world. There is such a thing as absolute truth. Now, our postmodern friends will say there is no such thing as absolute truth. Why is that nonsense? Because it is a statement of absolute truth itself. It is self-defeating. <laughs> it, is, it is rational, logical nonsense to say that there is no such thing as absolute truth. It is not logical or rational nonsense to say that there is such a thing as absolute truth. And there is absolute spiritual truth in this book. There's absolute physical and scientific truth in this book. God created them male and female. He did. That is science. And the study of that is right science and right biology. So there is such a thing as absolute truth. There is such a thing as absolute truth concerning matters of the soul. There is such a thing concerning absolute truth when it comes to the nature of man and the fact that there is a God and that the God who is is the God of this book, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Take this book in. Eat it. Eat it by reading it. Take it in by faith, like, like Ezekiel was given words from God at the end of Ezekiel 2. Words on a scroll which, were contain, which contain words of mourning and lament. Ezekiel gets told, eat it. And Ezekiel eats it. And what does it taste like? Honey. It's sweet. The Word of God is sweet. Eat this book by reading it, by studying it, by meditating on it, and you'll have honey for your soul. You will have a foundation for your life. You will have that which will sustain you in the hard times and that which will give you a right perspective on the good times as well. We're told to tell people what's in this book. Ezekiel was told to proclaim Ezekiel 2 and Ezekiel 3. He gets told to proclaim. And you know what he gets told while he's getting told to proclaim it? They're not going to listen. What did Isaiah get told in Isaiah 6? Go tell them. And they're not going to listen. Jeremiah is to tell the people. Go tell them. Twice, Jeremiah gets told by the Lord, don't pray for these people. 
But Jeremiah's book also says in Jeremiah 18, anyone who's under judgment who turns from their sins and turns to the living God in faith will have eternal life. This book proclaims what is true about everything. About life. Not just spiritual matters. This book addresses reality. It addresses what's true about man. It addresses what's true about nature. It addresses what is true about God. And it is truth. When you read that verse in John 17, that is not an adjective when Jesus says your word is truth. That's a noun. We've got two nouns there. We've got the word is a noun and truth is a noun. Truth is not merely describing the word. It's not like saying the word is precious or the word is sweet. You know a noun is a person, a place, or a thing. So he uses a noun. The, it, the, the truth, it, truth is something. It's not merely a description of something. It is something. So he's telling us what the Word of God is. It is truth. And this is the Word of God. God has revealed His will for man, and God has revealed His plan of redemption, and God has revealed what He wants to reveal to us about Himself in this book, and He has not revealed everything about Himself because there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29.29 But God cannot lie. This book is true from beginning to end. When God reveals His Word and reveals His will, He speaks truth. And if only Adam and Eve would have trusted that. So this book, it declares that there is such a thing as truth. And man hates this. You ever wonder why man, man doesn't like that? You ever give some thought to that? Why does man not like this book? Well, man likes certain things about this book. Man likes the kindness of Jesus and Jesus' kindness to the poor and the downcast and, and that sort of thing. But man doesn't like the fact that Jesus also says some things about himself and the nature of man. And Jesus says some things about man's accountability before God. And other places in this book talk about man's nature and man's accountability before God. And that man will be held accountable and that man is not sovereign. Man is not on the throne, although man may think they're on the throne. Man does not have authority. God has all authority. God has authority over man and what man is to do, think, and be, and this book declares facts. F-A-C-T-S, facts. It declares what is real. It talks about reality. It says what is true, and it says what is false, and it starts off by offending man right from the get-go with four words. In the beginning, God. It declares it. This book does not set out to prove it. This book proclaims it. In the beginning, God. And what did God do? God created. God hovered. God spoke. God saw. God separated. God called. God made. God made man, male and female. Science. We have science in Genesis 1. All things in this book are true. And people are going to want you to prove this or that about this book. They're going to say to you, you've got to prove to me that God exists. You've got to prove to me that the Bible is true. That or, or the Bible contradicts itself all over the place. There are, there are hundreds of Bible contradictions you hear. You can go on the, on the web and see all these websites that declare and proclaim all these biblical contradictions. Well, there are also websites that will refute all of those contradictions at the same time, biblically. But this book declares God. It doesn't use man-made reasons or rationale, or empirical means to, to prove who God is. This book declares who God is. It declares who man is. It declares man's problems. It declares the solution to man's problems. It declares who Jesus Christ is. It declares His life, death, and resurrection and ascension. It doesn't set out to prove it. Paul provides proof 
1 Corinthians 15. Go ahead and ask. There's 500 people still alive who saw him. You got 500 eyewitnesses. People believe? No, they still didn't believe. People say, if God would only manifest himself to me, they would believe. If God would prove himself to be real, God incarnate walked the, walked the streets of this earth for 30 some years and engaged in public ministry for three years to show us who he was and how real God is and how many people believed. People looked him in the eye and said, no. Jesus Christ is not to be proven. Jesus Christ is to be declared. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones would say in his book, Preaching and Preachers, he doesn't engage in debates because he says Jesus Christ is not to be debated. He is to be proclaimed. People want you to prove it though. But the, the problem is not proving what the Bible says or proving that the Bible is truth because men are wanting to sit in judgment on the truth of the Scripture. It's the other way around. The Bible's not on trial. God's not on trial. Man is on trial. You can't put God in the defendant's chair. People want to. Men want to. They want to put this book. They want to put this book on the witness stand. But what this book does is says, and it addresses the issue of what happens when, when men use carnal reasoning, when men use carnal thinking. This book judges men for carnal thinking and carnal reasoning. And so let's talk about that for a minute, about this issue of people wanting you to prove truth here. They want you to prove, is the Bible true? They want you to prove God exists. My counsel is don't do it. Don't fall for it. And you go, well, why not? Well, you tell me how you're going to prove to a person whose understanding is darkened, Ephesians 4.18, who cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14, using methods of proof invented by men because they don't want you to use this book in proving itself to be true. They want you to take this book, put it under here, and prove it's true. No, you don't do that. You leave it up here and declare that it's true. Who is man to sit in judgment against the Word of God? When did man, when did man <laughs> get the authority ceded to him from God to be the ultimate arbiter over whether or not this is true? But that's what man wants you to do. Man wants you to take God off the throne. It wants you to take the Bible off of its place of truth and still then prove it's true. And right from the get-go, you are in, <laughs> you're in deep water because you've lost your foundation. How are you going to prove the Bible is true without the Bible? But they want you to prove that the Bible is true without the Bible. But how can you even meet the burden of proof that they will ask you about? Try it. Ask questions. Ask what it would take to meet their burden of proof. Okay, you want me to prove that God exists. You want me to prove that the Bible is true. Okay, what do I have to do to do that? And it's interesting, quite often they can't tell you. <laughs> they go, well, well, I've never really thought about it. Or they go, well, that means you can't prove it. I've, I've, I've engaged a couple of commenters on couple of the videos we've done for I'll be honest you do that you they ask they tell you they demand you need to prove this I say first off well no I don't <laughs> but then if you want to play along okay if you want to answer the fool according to his folly Proverbs 26 5 you say okay I'll 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 I'll, I'll grant you this okay what does it take for me to prove that the Bible's true or God exists and they, they go, well, I, I need these three points. Okay, so you can say, if I, if I meet these three elements of your burden of truth, that will satisfy you that the Bible's true. And they will go, okay. And then I say, but what if you come up with number four? And then they're going to come up with number five. Then they're going to come up with number six. Then they're going to come up with number seven. And that's going to go on ad infinitum forever. But, but let's say you meet the seven points of proof that somebody wants. Then the guy's sister comes and says, no, that's not sufficient. I need 73 points. There is no standard. 
We're talking about universal, eternal truth here, and people want to have a, an absolutely subjective standard of truth that you have to meet when you're using objective truth. You can't do it. You can never meet their burden of proof, so don't try it. They're not going to like it. I know they're not going to like it. Because then they're going to say, you can't prove it. And, and I would say, again, let's use Proverbs 26.5, in love, answering a fool according to his folly. Okay. Sir, ma'am, sister, brother, you're saying that you will not believe this or anything. You will not believe this or anything unless it can be proven. Are you going to tell me that it's, it's illogical, it's irrational, it's crazy to believe anything unless it can be proven? And they're going to say, yes, I would affirm that. And then we can say, okay, I will, I will affirm that with you. So I would like you to prove the fact that it is irrational to not believe anything unless it can be proven. Can they? Can they prove their own presupposition? They can't. Again, it is logically, rationally, self-refuting, self-defeating. So don't go for it. Don't jump into their court to play the game. Stay on your court in order to engage them. Never move off of this as the standard. They don't want you to use this as your standard. They want you to set it aside and have you meet on some demilitarized zone between two warring factions, and we'll meet in the middle, we'll set everything aside and start as if we're all neutral. There's nobody who's neutral. Nobody. They're not and we're not. They believe things. We believe things. Don't, don't jump into the demilitarized zone because in reality, you're not jumping into the demilitarized zone. You're jumping onto their territory. And then you are, you are in, in deep water from the very beginning. So don't do it. But they, they want you to prove things. So the, at the end of the day, again, the issue is not trying to prove this Bible is true. The issue is declaring that this Bible is true, that this book is true. If, if you're going to try and prove that this book is true, it's like trying to, trying to engage a, lost, uh, a blind man and show him a picture and have him prove something by looking at a picture. I could pull out a picture of our two youngest daughters. Okay, I could pull out a picture of Sarah and Hannah and say, okay, which one looks like me, Sarah or Hannah? And, and the blind guy says, oh, Hannah looks like you. And I say, you're from Texas. Okay, People in Texas think Hannah looks like me. People in Michigan think Sarah looks like me. But the blind guy can't see the picture. Why would you show a blind guy a picture to prove something when he can't, he can't see it? It's the same thing here. Why are you going to try and prove something to somebody who does not have the ability to understand it? Ephesians 4.18, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, can you? Well, if you decide to, can God use that to convert somebody? Yes. But I would say that you've got to be very, very careful here because you end up losing your foundation. Did Jesus ever step off of Scripture as His foundation for responding to people? Absolutely not. He didn't. And we shouldn't either. But this book is true. I've said it a lot yet, and I'm going to continue to say it. Because we need to be reminded of it. Because this book needs to be where we go when real life comes at us 100 miles an hour. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say sanctify them by truth and experience and by this and by that. He says sanctify them in the truth. This is the means by which the statement in 1 Thessalonians is carried out, the will of God being our sanctification. How are we going to know what God wants for our lives if we're going to go anywhere else besides this? How are we going to relate to the brethren? How are we going to re relate to the lost unless we know what this book says? We know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God. From here back to here. All of it. Every single word of it. Scripture says that about itself. Scripture testifies to its own truth. People don't like that. 
But again, this is God declaring His Word, and God has dominion over man. Man does not have dominion over God, although man thinks that man has dominion over God. You think about what Scripture says. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119.105 O Lord, You are God, and Your words are true. 2 Samuel 7, verse 28. The sum of Your Word, add it all up, the sum of your word is truth, and your words are true. The sum of your word is truth, rather, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. Now read Psalm 119. How many of those verses talk in one way or another about the word of God? You've got to look pretty hard to find one that doesn't. You start with God, though. Man wants you to start with man. This is going to, you know, how we respond is going to determine whether or not we are God-centered or man-centered at the end of the day. But we start with God, and we start with God's Word. We know God is spirit. Therefore, we know spiritual truth exists. We know earlier in John 17, Jesus prays, and He, and he prays, to his father about the glory that he shared with his father before the world existed. So there was spiritual truth before in the beginning God. So there's always been truth, even when there wasn't time. John 14.6, what does Jesus say about himself? I am the way, definite article, the truth, the life. He doesn't say I am a way, a truth, and a life. I am the, there's only one. Colossians 2.3 tells us what is hidden in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Without Christ, we can't really know anything. Christ has revealed, pushed out truth to people, even to lost people. Why does a lost guy know that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Because Christ has been kind and given him that knowledge. Does he acknowledge the fact that it came from, came from the Son of God? No, he doesn't. That's what makes it sin because he thinks I am smart enough to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I am smart enough to know this or that or the other thing. He does not acknowledge God. He, is, he doesn't understand the fact that the fact that he doesn't acknowledge God in his intelligence, that God hasn't smitten him yet like he did in Acts chapter 12 with Herod when Herod took credit for what he had and he was. But God is kind to the lost. God is kind to the rebels in this book. The truth of Scripture says that God is kind to the people who use the very tongues and hearts and minds and mouths and brains that He has given them to blaspheme Him. But God is kind to giving people time to repent. That's what this book also says. God is kind to the rebels, but God also says there's going to be a day when that kindness stops. And they'll find out just how true this book is on that day. But why do we know? Why do we believe? Why do we trust this book? You ever think about that? Why, why do I believe this and my sister doesn't? You believe it because God gave you faith. You were blind, like the guy in John 9. I was blind, but now we see. He gave you a new heart. He changed you. He did something for you as a gift. He gave you the gift of repentance, turning away from your sin and turning to God. He gave you the gift of the fear of the Lord. That's essential because Scripture says that without the fear of the Lord, you are ignorant and unwise because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, Psalms and Proverbs. That's why the lost don't have true knowledge, even though they may know 2 plus 2 equals 4, because they don't have the fear of the Lord. We know that there was a day when we were like the person in Romans 1.20. We knew who God was. We knew His invisible attributes. We knew His eternal power. We knew His divine nature. But we suppressed that in our sin. Why? Because we loved our sin. Why? Because we love living in the darkness. People may not think they're living in the darkness because they walk around, the sun still comes up every day, the sun goes down every day, the lights come on, they think, I'm not living in the darkness. They're living in spiritual darkness, though. 
Because as long as they live there, they're children of the devil. But why do we believe? Because God gave us something. Philippians 1.29, He gave us faith. And Scripture says, whoever believes. People will object to this book because they say this book is narrow-minded. There's only one way. How can you guys say there's only one way? That's man-centered. The question is not, why is there only one way? The question is, why is there even one way? Why is God so kind to, to respond in His eternal divine plan to our rebellion and giving us an opportunity to repent? We don't have Scripture that can really back this up, but I'm thinking that when the devil's doing what the devil's doing in Genesis 3, because I think we get the sense from Scripture that the devil sins once and he's cast out of heaven with no opportunity for redemption, that's probably what he thought God would do with Adam and Eve. Did God cast Adam and Eve out after one sin? Yes. But did he leave them without hope? No. He didn't. We've got Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. It's going to happen someday. So we have hope. We have hope because of all of this. He gave us everything that we have. He's, he's, he's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. He is the great I Am. And He does all of this in kindness and generosity. God is not mean. People look at this book and say, your God is evil. No, He's not. Our God is kind. He's generous. He's good. He's holy. He's righteous. He's faithful. But men want God in their own image if they're going to want a God. If, they, if they'll even admit that they don't want themselves as God, they want a God that they can take like a piece of clay, make Him here, and He does this and this and that for me. He gives me what I want. He protects me from people who I don't like. But that's not the God of Scripture. That God that you mold yourself has no power and no authority. This God has all power and all authority. So I want to take a few minutes and, and quickly address some objections you might get in life to this book. Somebody asks you something, I'll say right now, if somebody asks you something and you don't know the answer, you know, it's okay to say, I don't know. <laughs> it is. It's okay to say, I don't know. Let me try and find an answer. And, but make sure you tell them, I want to find a biblical answer to your question. I, I may not know it right now, but let me, let me do some reading. and I'll, I'll come. Are they going to like your biblical answer? No. They didn't like Jesus' biblical answers. But you still give them a biblical answer. But you go ahead and do it anyway. One, one thing people may say about this book, well, men wrote this book, right? They'll say, okay. James, did, man, did, did men write this book? And we can respond with, yes, men did write this book. Okay, well, are men perfect? Can men make errors? And do make men make errors? Yes, they are not perfect. They can make errors, and they do make errors. Well, James, if, if that's true, and men wrote this book, then this book has errors in it. Well, that's not a reasonable conclusion, is it? Why? Every word in this book has been breathed out by God. Men wrote this book not of their own, only volition. They wrote this book carried along by the Spirit. The Spirit cannot lie. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit was sent to lead men into all truth. Is it unreasonable or irrational, biblically, to think that the God who created everything out of nothing, who spoke and it all was, not only was it, it is, God who has that power and authority, is it unreasonable to think that God can, God can breathe out His words and have men write their own words and have them be true and without error even as they're the words of men at the same time that they're the words of God? No, that's not unreasonable. Is this book written by men? Yes. Is this book written by God? Yes. Because it's written by God, it cannot contain error. And it does not contain error. Will your objector like that response? No. But again, the issue is they're trying to put this book on the witness stand. The issue is, is the defendant is your objector, not this book. 
we go back to another issue. They're going to say to you, this book is narrow-minded and so are you because you believe what's in this book. How can you say there's only one? How can you say, again, how can you say that, that that Hindu guy in Nepal is going to be damned if he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ? You're unloving and you're judgmental. Again, does that guy in Nepal, in, in Lebanon, in San Antonio, in wherever, deserve what? They deserve hell. Why? It's not because they haven't heard the Gospel. It's because they already know who God is. They're not being condemned upon what they don't know. They're being condemned upon what they do know. They do know who God is. Romans 1.20 They do know who God is. They do know His invisible attributes. They do know His eternal power. They do know His divine nature. And that's the basis for their condemnation whether they've heard the Gospel or not. Nobody is getting anything that's unjust. Because again, God is just. God cannot do anything that which is wrong. God necessarily does what is right and just. So nobody, nobody gets injustice at the end of the day. And man, but man, man wants this spiritual golden corral where you've got 35 options on, on the way to heaven. The issue is not that there need to be 35 options. That's man-centered. The issue is it's only by grace that there's one. And we thank God that there's one way. You're going to hear that the Bible contradicts itself. That the Bible says this over here and then it says the exact opposite of it over here and both of them cannot be true in the same time in the same relationship. That's the very definition of the law of non-contradiction. Does James contradict Paul? People are going to tell you they do contradict each other. They only contradict each other if you don't read what they say rightly. <laughs> you actually have to read what they say and you can see that they don't contradict each other. But what's a contradiction? Okay, I can see that I, I look around and I, I can see that uh, who can I pick on? Frank Harris. Frank Harris could, could be both a, a father and a son at the same time. Is that contradictory? No, because you're talking about two different senses there. Because you can be a father to your children and a son to your father. So Frank can be both of those at the same time. But let's look at the Bible and let's look at one which somebody could bring before you. Let's go to Romans 12. And look at verse 3. This is just an illustration and this is Admittedly, a simple one, an easy one, but this is the kind of thing that people will challenge you on. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That verse says that God has assigned a measure of faith to each. A measure of faith to each. Okay, keep your finger there. Flip ahead a little bit to 2 Thessalonians 3. Romans 12. Paul, God is assigned to each a measure of faith. 2 Thessalonians 3. Same writer, Paul. Same human writer, Paul. Same divine writer, both cases. Carried along by the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Your Bible contradiction websites will say, we'll see, Romans 12.3 says, God has assigned to each a measure of faith. That same writer Paul then goes and contradicts himself in 2 Thessalonians 3 when he says, not all have faith. Is that a contradiction? No. And we need to be able to explain why. Well, why is it not a contradiction? Well, who's Paul writing to in Romans 12? He's writing to a church that is full of people whose faith is proclaimed throughout the world. And he's saying about those people, God has assigned to each one of those a measure of faith within the Roman church. Who is he writing about in 2 Thessalonians 3? Well, 
verse 2 tells us. He's writing about the wicked and evil men who do not have faith. There's no contradiction there. At first glance, if somebody puts those two verses right on top of each other, people will go, well, see, it contradicts itself. But all you have to do is read the context of it, and you can see that, in fact, it does not contradict itself. And that's the way it is with every single one of those alleged contradictions that you can find on all of those websites and that people will... People may not know their Bibles very well, but the, uh, a lot of unbelievers will learn what the contradictions are and try and get you off your square and challenge you on this and get you to doubt. Because that's where they want you to go. They want you to join them in their unbelief. They, they want you to be in their camp. They want you to be, in essence, biblically, a fool just like them. They want you to start doubting this, that, or the other thing. Or they want you to, to look at experience and life. You can look at all of these deconversions you see out there amongst certain people in the Christian realm, the contemporary Christian artists who've walked away from the faith. You can look at the guys, the YouTubers, the Good Mythical Morning guys, Rhett and Link, who've walked away from the faith. And why have they walked away? They've walked away because of experience. Typically, in our realm today, in our age, it's because they've got some friend who is homosexual. And they love their friend. Or maybe they've got a sibling who's homosexual. And they go, well, this guy is so nice. This girl is so nice. They're so loving and kind. How, how, how can they be doing anything wrong? How can, how can it be wrong for them to enter into a loving relationship with another homosexual? God's kind and God is forgiving. But, but God, this, this book also says that it's wrong and that people like that who engage in that, who are identified by that, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But I love my friend. I love my sister. And they doubt what the Bible says about homosexuality. And then they determine in their doubt that the Bible has to be wrong about homosexuality. And if it can be wrong about homosexuality, it can be wrong about everything else. Or, it can be, or people can have doubt about this, that, or the other thing. Say what you want about Billy Graham, but Billy Graham had, a mission, had, a, had, a, had an evangelistic comrade in the late 40s named Charles Templeton. And Billy Graham would say, Charles Templeton was a better evangelist than I was. Charles Templeton started to doubt, though. And what put Charles Templeton over the edge was this. There was a famine in Africa. Children were starving. Probably National Geographic, the magazine, was putting pictures in there of children, gaunt, ribs sticking out with the bulging bellies that happens when you're starving. Charles Templeton said, I can't worship a God who would let children starve. That's a hard one. But that is not any way, shape, or form anything that impugns the character of God. Because this book is true. You can't let your experience determine truth or falsehood. This book is transcendent. This book is just as true today as it was before any of us were born. We don't get to determine what the standard of truth is. This book does. And we trust it by faith. Even when we don't have the answers. Even when things are mysterious or hard. I had to deal with that with our son, our youngest son, when our middle son was killed in 2002. He's run over by a truck. And our youngest son, for six years, hated God. Why? Because he said, why didn't, cause, why didn't God cause that truck to go two feet either side of John instead of running over him the way it did? He doubted the Word of God because of his grief. He doubted the Word of God because of his pain and sorrow. And I think we can get it. But at the end of the day, even when I don't have the answer, why didn't the truck go two feet either way? It didn't. Because God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
Not all things are good. Let's not call that which is evil good. But God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And in situations like that, what do we have other than our faith? When we don't have answers to our questions, we might answer, why? And God's response is, trust me. And that's hard in hard times. It's really easy to trust God when things are going well. It's hard to trust God when you're looking at your son's body in a casket. But God sustained us by grace. God sustains us by this truth. God sustained us by the fact that He had been kind to us and taught us about His sovereignty over all things before May 29, 2002. You don't need May 29, 2002 to trust God. But if you're immersed in this Word, if you believe it's true, it will help you with your own personal May 29, 2002. Maybe they're little May 29ths to you or really big May 29ths to you. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Trust God. He loves you, brethren, even when it's hard because there's nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we... We thank You that in kindness You have given us Your Word. You've given us Your will. You had men write down these things for us. As we see twice in 1 Corinthians 10 as examples for us. Father, let us learn from from what our, our, our forefathers in the faith had to deal with. Let us learn from their mistakes, Father. Let us learn also from their obedience. Let us learn from their faith. Let us learn from their trust. Father, we don't have Jesus Christ, our teacher, sitting in the front row, looking us in the eye, teaching us now. But He sent His Spirit to guide us into all of His truth. Father, help us to trust that in His name. Amen.